For most of us, when we first hear of the Dhamma and we come to Dhamma practice, we have a very um, exalted view of what the result will be. And our immediate experience in the first phase of our practice, which could be the first retreat or the first decade of retreats, um, doesn't usually confirm it. And while we do seek some guidance and instruction, uh, we often use techniques, and, and we think, you know, somehow that we're supposed to attain some kind of state and kind of stay there or hang out there or, you know, just get calm or get high or whatever your particular direction is in, in spiritual practice. And even while making a lot of effort, we're, we're not very successful at it. And it doesn't take too long before we realize that's pretty unrealistic. However, after you know, the initial challenges of, of Dharma practice, uh, we begin to get a, we begin to understand what the terrain of practice is. That it's not about just becoming a technician of some technique. It's not about becoming a perfectionist. It's not about attaining some state and just staying there. It's not about getting it, then go home and live the rest of your life with it. It's about really making your lifestyle one of awareness. Not, a life, not the lifestyle of busyness and indulgence and ambition that we just smear a little coat of dharma words on, but rather coming from the inside where we really start to live a life of awareness and, of course, the predictable uh, changes that awareness is going to bring. Sadhu Tejaniya says, you know, we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom a marathon and not a sprint. And I was just reading one of the daily Tejaniyas that, that come every day, a little reminder that comes in the email every day that you can sign up for yourself. Um, and he just says, uh, one of them in the last few days said something like, you know, this practice never stops. If you stop, if you think you've gotten all that you are supposed to get out of wisdom, then you haven't. <laughs> you know, you've, you've missed the point because there's no end to new experience, new understanding, new way of uh, relating to what this, what this present moment of awareness really is. So I want to talk about, about what mature awareness looks like and how we come upon it in our life. And I want to speak about it in terms of the, what I call the five controlling faculties or the five spiritual faculties because these are the five factors of mind which are activated, cultivated, brought to development and brought into balance through practice. The first of these is sadha, which is often translated as faith, but it also means confidence, assurance, and uh, the, the understanding, the, the steadiness that comes from our own experience. 
The second of them is virya, energy or effort, which is needed to do anything in life. The third is sati, which is mindfulness. And in the context of awareness, mindfulness as a factor of mind is the ability to remember, to remember this moment. And as others have acknowledged, it's easy to be mindful when someone directs your attention to take notice, but it's hard to remember to do that on your own. And so it's mindfulness or sati that remembers. It is the function of remembering to take notice of the present moment. The fourth uh, controlling faculty of the mind is called samadhi, which is sometimes translated as concentration. It's a little misleading to say concentration. I like stability of mind better, and I'll speak about that. And the fifth is panya, or wisdom, understanding. Now the interesting thing about these five controlling or spiritual faculties is that they are causal. Causal in that faith is the cause for making effort. Making effort is the cause for remembering mindfulness. Continuity of mindfulness is the cause of stability of mind or collectedness of mind, samadhi. And with samadhi, we see and understand more. We have more wisdom. Increased wisdom, again, inspires our faith and confidence even more to make more effort, to be more mindful, to be more stable, to see and understand more. And it's a gradual, cyclic, sequential growth of these factors to maturity, or really there's no end to how mindful, how stable, how much wisdom one can develop. But it's through the development of these five in this cyclical way that gradually increases our experience of awareness in our life. We could say that mature awareness really is an ongoing interest in observing the present moment experience and understanding it in a skillful way, being willing to acknowledge uh, anything and everything that arises without a tormented reaction, but more of a compassionate and wise response to conditions. So the first of these factors is sadha, or faith, that matures to confidence, and it matures to unshakable confidence, meaning nothing will divert you from your faith in the practice when you first glimpse the unconditioned. But back at the beginning, let me just um, share a story with you. Um, After dropping out of law school, (laughs) because I'd had too many years of school already, I went to a, uh, well, I just kind of escaped to a, a hippie commune in central Maine back in the early 70s and just 
you know, at age 24, learned again how to climb trees, go barefoot, just kind of, kind of heal from all that education. And uh, so I was really enjoying the, um, the hippie life on the commune. And it was a, you know, predictable um, hippie commune. The, the, the glue that held us all together was the Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd. And the sacrament that made their music so special. <laughs> so that was... <laughs> at that point, <laughs> um, I didn't know any Buddhists. I didn't know any meditators. I wasn't interested in the spiritual life. I had no... That was just the furthest thing from my mind. I was not in that realm at all. Didn't know anybody who meditated. But one of the women in the commune picked up this book called Beginning to See, little one-line aphorisms about mindfulness, in the back of which was an address you could write for more information. She wrote, the, got a response back that said, hey, by the way, there's a, there's a mindfulness insight retreat going on right now in Bucksport, Maine. We were in central Maine. Bucksport was only an hour and a half away. And they said, in two weeks, there's going to be a two-week introductory course. So she said she wanted to go. I thought she said she was going to like a resort. <laughs> now, I, I don't know what I was thinking I was going to be going to, but I didn't, I didn't even know what a retreat was, let alone a meditation retreat. But paid my fee. Paid my fee. We drove down to Bucksport. We got to this old seminary. And it was the last two weeks of the first three-month course in 75. And the night before we went, we went to listen to Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review live show. You know, we had to get prepared for a retreat. We showed up at the retreat, and there's 50 or 60 people that had been there for two and a half months already, walking around. It was cold, wrapped up in blankets, looking at the floor, acting like zombies, and we thought, what in the world is going on here? <laughs> but we paid our money, so we said, well, here we are. Let's, let's do the deed. So, just like you, came to a retreat, found a place. I sat way up back. I leaned against the piano the whole two weeks. It was sheer and utter agony the whole time. <laughs> I mean, my body was not ready to sit, and my mind was not fit to sit either. I mean... <laughs> It was very, very difficult. And after the retreat, we drove back to the commune. Now, the interesting thing was, there were about 15 people in this commune, from kids to an 85-year-old guy that dropped in and stayed. And we, we got back to the commune, and everybody was there, doing the same thing they always did. Everything was the same, you know. There was nothing different except us. And we looked at this whole scene that we were, had been living in for a while, and we just thought, what are we doing here, really? It's like, what in the world is this all about? And it wasn't, I mean, that was the beginning of the end. You know, we just slowly, over the next few years, began to do more retreats and drift further away from the lifestyle of the commune. Now, here I am, 35, 40 years later, trying to convince you to do the same thing. 
sit up back, lean against the piano in utter agony, change your life. So I've questioned myself, like, what, what happened in that retreat? You know, because I didn't know anything about the Dharma. And that what I got out of Dharma talks was, during that retreat was pretty minimal. But something got awakened that was undeniable, but unexplainable. Faith. And it wasn't faith in myself, it really wasn't faith in the teachings, it was really faith in the practice. Because once you sit down and you start looking at your own mind and body and the experience, and you start to begin to parse it out and, and, and just see what's going on, it becomes the most fascinating thing you've ever observed. There's no TV show or movie that will ever compare to what's going on in your own mind. It's just fascinating. And a few years after that first retreat, I went to the meditation center in Massachusetts, which had just opened a year, a year earlier, a year after the retreat. And the first day of the, my work, I, was, I, was work, I went to work there. And I was up in the attic, insulating some dorm rooms so they'd be a little warmer. And I was talking to another staff member, Rodney Smith, who's also a Dharma teacher now up in Seattle. And you've got to remember, I did one retreat, one two-week retreat, and now I am two years later, and we're having a discussion about, you know, Nibbana and the realization of the Dharma in your life. Of course, I knew nothing about it, but I said to him, I have no doubt, I have absolutely no doubt that in this life I'll realize the Dharma. I had no idea what I was saying. I had no idea what realizing the Dharma meant. I didn't know what Nibbana was. I didn't know anything about it factually, but I knew there was no doubt. Doubt does not, confidence does not rely on knowledge. <laughs> you can have a tremendous amount, to amount of, of confidence to do something, even if you don't know what it is you've got to do. Which is not always wise, but it does take... <laughs> that, was, that was just my way of, that was my way of going at it. And what, what I realized is that I was so confident of the kind of practice I was doing, even though I wasn't very skillful at it, that I just knew that this practice was, this was the key, this was it. This was the most reliable thing that I'd been doing in my life. I was 26 at the time. And it's just like, it worked. Not well yet, but it worked. That kind of personal experience, even though it's very, it's very personal and it's very uh, unique to each one of us, that kind of confidence or faith or inspiration or trust, whatever it is that you have in the Dharma, is invaluable. Be careful about losing it. Because... The path of practice, the first, the first part of practice is really solidifying that confidence, kind of moving in a direction with practice that uproots doubt. And the, and the challenge for us all in the initial stages of practice is to basically confront all of our doubt about our own ability to do this, about the efficacy of practice, about the wisdom of even doing this practice, about how to practice, what the goal of practice is. And it can take a while to practice, uh, uncover all your doubts, 
and keep practicing through them until you are so confident that nothing will shake you from the path. And it, it happens. It happens. If you keep going and uh, you face the doubts that are bound to arise, you will come to a place of knowing for yourself this is the path. And it's the path that works for you to really at least feel confident in um, making it an endeavor in your life. With that kind of faith, it's easy to make effort. It's actually easy to make too much effort, you know. But effort, you know, it's said that the Buddha spoke more about right effort than any other topic, more than about enlightenment, more than about mindfulness, more than about samadhi or whatever, more about right effort. And I've, I've often wondered why. And I realize now, just looking in my own practice and, and looking at so many students that I've seen over the years, there's just so many ways to practice wrongly. There are just so many ways to not make right effort that it seems like the Buddha had to address all of them. And so there's a lot to talk about. But one of the... Um, one of the causes for making effort is having a reason to do so. Even if you have faith in the Dharma, even if you read the Dharma or you've done a retreat and you have just a lot of faith and a lot of confidence and you want to... If you don't have a sense of urgency, what's called spiritual urgency, called samvega in the Pali language, if you don't have that urgency, you'll just sit on it. You'll just sit on that confidence and you won't, you won't do anything. You know, you know the story of the prince uh, Siddhartha living in his father's royal palaces or bungalows, whatever they were, and enjoying the luxurious life of a wealthy prince 2,600 years ago, at some point his karma propelled him to leave the protection of his father's dwellings and to venture out into the world. And what he saw, and this is kind of metaphorical, is he saw an old person, a sick person, and a corpse. Well, that's kind of myth mythologizing what probably all of us have come to realize at some point is that, you know what? We're going to get sick, we're going to grow old, and we're going to die. And at some level, we begin to understand that. As he saw, he, he saw it dramatically. He just understood that even though he was living this luxurious life of comfort and ease and entertainment and distraction, it was coming. It was going to happen to him. And we all have our own glimpse of that. And it said that when you get a glimpse of your own mortality or you get a glimpse of just the inescapability of a whole life, that it can really shake you up. It can really shake you out of your complacency out of your willingness to just kind of get by, to kind of more or less just kind of seek comfort. 
you know, middle class, middle age, middle, middle, middle comfort. Which is, you know, that, that's, that's pretty attractive to a lot of people. But it's not going to inoculate you or insulate you from the inevitable old age, sickness and death. And how are you going to deal with that? And that kind of understanding, that deep grokking the fact that it's going to happen to me. It's not just for grandpa and grandma, it's right here. And some of us get a glimpse of it in our 20s and some not till our 30s and some not till our 40s, but when it comes, you need to heed the call. You need to heed the call and feel that sense of urgency and do something about it. And doing something about it is making the effort. And if you've been exposed to the teachings of the Buddha, then you'll make effort to be aware and develop the Eightfold Path, and that's your journey. Sometimes people say, well, yeah, but geez, when you get this shocking realization of old age, sickness, and death, or whatever it is that motivates you to kind of get serious about your life and really look at what really matters in your life, it can be pretty overwhelming. It can be depressing. It can be, you can, you can get pretty despairing about what you see ahead and what are you going to do about it. But interestingly enough, there's another element that comes with genuine spiritual urgency in that samvega, and it's, it's a kind of a quiet confidence to proceed, to just move forward. And it's part of faith. It's part of the faith that just clarifies your kind, your aspiration. What is it you really, what, what really matters in your life anyway? You know, yeah, we have our genetic compulsions. We have our family obligations. We have our societal requirements and all that we have to do. But what really matters to you? Really? When you come right down to it, what can't you live without? in your heart. And when you get a glimpse of that, nothing will stop you. After I'd been practicing for about seven years, doing retreats at the meditation center and being on staff there for a number of years uh, in Massachusetts, every year I used to go do a retreat in midwinter around my, my birthday. And I'd gone again in the beginning of 1985, and I was about 35, I guess. Yeah, 35. And I was, you know, just doing my retreat. It was kind of a solitary retreat. There wasn't an organized retreat at the time. And about three or four days in, I was having a hard time, you know, just, just settling in and just kind of getting there. And I was actually lying down, doing some lying down meditation. And I mean, really, med- not just sleeping. And I had this vision come into my, my, my mind. And it was a shrouded figure that looked to be just a skeleton that said to me, not in words, but conveyed to me, the, most, the moment of death is the most important moment of your life. 
and it shook me up. It just really disturbed me. And it made me look at my life at the time. And I was, you know, an a35 and I had my own business I was a, a builder and had you know a, a year's worth of contracts ahead and I was just and I just started reflecting on you know what I'd been doing and you know the the path ahead that I could see for myself was more work a newer truck a bigger bigger house more meals in restaurants and more nice clothes that I didn't really care about anyway and I just said that's it you know I mean I wasn't I wasn't in the family mode that just wasn't my you know and long-term relationship it just and I just said that's not it that that is not going to do it for me I mean it's not like I figured it out it was just like there was no feeling in me that that was enough that that was what it was all about and I just on the spot just decided, it just became clear, I'm done with it. I'm not doing this anymore. And made the decision to go to Asia, ordain as a monk, and for whatever, however long it took, and I was there for five years. The urgency to continue the practice was, I couldn't not do it. It was hard to do it. You know, disentangling from that kind of lifestyle, think about it. How are you going to do that? You, you, you don't. Not, it's not easy. Something You've got to be crazy, kind of. Or you've got to be, well, on fire. And I was. I was just so on fire to understand what this practice was about and what the benefit of it was that I was willing to, well, sacrifice what all I knew of security, stability, uh, achievement, financial reward it just that did not cut it for me and off I went that kind of urgency makes you drives you to to make effort to realize to to satisfy that urgency and I was on fire, as I said. I went to Burma and practiced with Sadhu Pandita. And in that monastery, you know, day one, you show up, you look at the schedule, wake up at 3 in the morning, sit and walk, alternate hours until 11 o'clock at night, and you can go to bed. As Upandita used to say, you can sleep as much as you like between 11 and 3. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> one day. One day, I mean, I, I set my clock, got up at four hours every time. And one day, for whatever reason, I don't know, after I'd been practicing a month or some, some fairly short amount of time, one day I either didn't hear the alarm or I set it for five hours instead of four or whatever it was. And five hours. The alarm, I, I got up, but I'd, I'd been asleep five hours. So I was reporting to Pandita every day at two o'clock and I went to, I would go to his room, open the door, walk across the, the 20 foot or 15 foot floor, do my bows to him, talk to the translator, get translated, whatnot. Well, this day, I went to the door, I opened the screen door, I walked in, and he's sitting over there, and he says from across the room, I didn't even get over there to bow, he says, uh, 
How many hours did you sleep last night? I wanted to say I only sleep four, but I'd slept five. So I said, well, I, um, I slept five last night. Oh, please try harder. Dismissed. Woo. You know, when you're dealing, when you're practicing with somebody like that, when someone like that is guiding you, it, you don't screw around. <laughs> you know, but unfortunately, his translators always used to say, please try harder. And so I was sitting these grueling hours. Every time I'd sit, I'd see how long I could sit. I'd sit for an hour, I'd sit for two hours, I'd sit for three hours, I'd sit for for four hours. When you start sitting four hours a day, you don't have to do many sittings. You know, four hours at a time, you don't have to do many, two or three a day, that's it. And, but it's excruciating. It was so painful, you know, you know, sit for, sit for four hours. I mean, it's, it's not fun. And I was going to him and I was reporting this excruciating pain in exquisite detail. And he was just sitting there, hmm, is that all? <laughs> After a couple of weeks of this, one time I went in, gave the usual report, he says to me, and I was reporting all this pain, he says, <clears throat> you know why I have so much pain? I said, no, but I was anxious to hear what the teachings was going to be. He says, you sit too long. <laughs> oh, that's... <laughs> So I was like, he said, you don't need to sit. Sit an hour, walk an hour. It's the continuity that is going to develop the concentration and the wisdom. It's not some heroic over-efforting. But his translators kept saying, please try harder. And all I could think of, please try harder was, you know, <laughs> you know, which is, creates a lot of tension in the body, a lot of tension in the mind. It's just like it was... Anyway... That was a relief to get that instruction. That's not good practice. That kind of striving for, well, some, some ridiculous goal, I, you know, whatever. What I don't know what I, I don't know what I thought I was trying to do. I was trying to sit longer. I thought that was what I was supposed to do. Wrong effort. It takes quite a while to learn what right effort is, and initially we might, you know, do a exuberant retreat. And six months later, do a, a kind of a lethargic retreat, and we realize, well, that's neither one of those works. So we start tightening it up, and every month we check in with what's right effort, and then we get down to every week, then we get down to every day. You know, the direction of practice is monitoring right effort on a moment to moment basis, moment to moment, so that you know in every moment, am I connecting with the present moment or not? And if you aren't, well, got to do something about it. And if you're trying too hard and you're a little too tight or you're overshooting or you're restless, well, you're trying too hard. And so there's this very refined understanding of how to monitor your practice, how to monitor your effort, and it takes it just takes experience. You just have to try, notice when you're off course, and try again. No one succeeds without effort, Ramana Maharshi said. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. Just persevering. You can't get it doing nothing. And if you try too hard, 
you'll miss the point too. One of my favorite teachers from the last century was Carlos Castaneda, who uh, was taught by Don Juan. And he writes in one of his books, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now realized that I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said, we either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. And you begin to get it. You begin to see that that's right. If we want to be miserable, we've got to work at it. We've got to keep dwelling and ruminating on all the wrong things, unskillfully. And if we want to be free and strong and really keep your mind stable, you've got to make the same effort. It all depends on what you're, how you're aiming your effort. So, the first factor is Sada, faith or confidence to make the effort. Making effort is a balancing act between too little and too much, and it needs ongoing monitoring. And the result, or what we do with that effort in this practice, is to, well, be mindful. Which, as I said, the function of um, mindfulness, or sati as a mental factor, is to not forget the present moment. That's all that mindfulness does. Don't forget the present moment. That means remember. Now, as Joseph said, it's not difficult to be mindful. It's difficult to remember to be mindful. And as uh, Tijaniya said something like this too, he said, it's remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. Well, after I'd been doing retreats for about eight years, Upandita came to, just before I went to the monastery, Upandita came to America and he was offering a three-month retreat for 20 people. These 20 people were all identified as teachers or people who were going to be trained to be teachers except me. I was the former executive director at the retreat center and I insisted on doing the retreat, so they let me in. But they forgot to tell Upandita that I wasn't going to be a teacher. So, anyway, I was reporting to him then and I was following this woman who was quite new to practice, but she had great practice, just really, really good mindfulness. So one day I was standing out in the hallway, and I could overhear her giving her report to Pandita 15 feet down the hallway in his room, doors open, and she was so excited. She was just exuberant. She was just raving about what she was seeing and what she was knowing and remembering her past lives and everything that was going on. And, and I was standing in the hall saying, where's the breath? You know, and she's just kind of... <laughs> so I was a little bit like, oh my God. So she came out and I went in, did my bows, and out of sheer exasperation with how challenging and difficult it was for me, I just blurted out to Pandita. I said, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives or something? And he looks up at me kindly and said, no, remembering this life. <laughs> That's it. It's just remembering this moment of life. That's all mindfulness is, or that's what the function of mindfulness is. 
But, you know, in our very confused and complex minds, we can imagine that there's all kinds of other things that we're supposed to be doing in our practice. What, you know, whether it's developing the chakras and kundalini and this and that and energies and psychic powers and absorptions and twilights and bright lights and, <laughs> geez, you know, twitters and glitters and everything, uh, you know, just kind of coming out your ears and whatever. <laughs> it's not. I mean, it's, it's really not. It's, it is so simple that it's hard to keep it that simple. It's just remembering to acknowledge the present moment's experience. Hard to be satisfied with something so simple. And it's hard to believe that it's really going to have the transformative effect that we hear others referring or referencing or exclaiming. I mean, there's all kinds of spiritual goodies that we hear about. You know, the exalted spiritual goodies of ecstasy and bliss and, you know, the calm goodies of tranquility and uh, calmness and equanimity and unshakable confidence and light. There's just, there's just all kinds of spiritual goodies that await you on the journey. And if you practice and you develop your mind, they will come. They will come. Guaranteed. It's not whether some people get it and some people don't. If you practice, you practice well, you will come upon all these spiritual goodies. But they're just scenic turnouts on the route. They're not the goal. But it takes a while to learn that because we get seduced by and we, we believe that ecstasy and bliss and equanimity and you know piercing clarity and you know great insights, we think that's it. Well, it isn't. It's just observing all of them too. When they happen to be the experience of the present moment, you just acknowledge that. It comes, it goes. They're all conditioned phenomena. They don't last. And if we're grabbing on to any, any experience as the goal, the end, the thing to hang on to, we're stuck. We've stopped practicing. We've stopped growing in understanding of the way it is, the way things are. So mindfulness is, as I said, not forgetting or remembering to acknowledge the present moment's experience. And it's not just acknowledging, it's, it's having the mind steady enough that you're not just kind of skipping over the top of it, but you're really settled onto the moment's experience, where you can really put your mind on the moment and taste it. You can feel it, you can taste it with the mind, so that you're not just kind of skimming over it. I'd been practicing in the monastery for, I think, a couple of years. And I, you know, I was, my, the momentum was really strong after a couple of years of practice. And it was just going well, but, you know, there's still stuff to see, there's still stuff to discover. And it's an ongoing moment to moment remembering and, and trying to stay balanced. And I remember I was walking on the back side of my room. There was an alleyway there. Uh, and I was walking there one afternoon and I saw something in my mind that I had never seen before. 
And it really surprised me because it was so contrary to what I had always thought and done. I was walking and I saw myself saying to myself, Oh, poor me. I don't know if I can do this practice. I'm, I'm, I started too late. I'm too old. And then, you know, I just noticed that. Oh, that's... <laughs> what's that? Uh, back to lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And after, you know, a little while later, oh, poor me. I can't do this. I'm, t- I'm too tired. And I saw that and I said, oh, poor me. I'm too tired. So, notice that. Back to lifting, moving, placing. And then, you know, later on throughout the day, I kept seeing these, oh, poor me's. Oh, poor me. I can't do this. I've done too many drugs. <laughs> oh, poor me. I can't do this. I haven't done enough drugs. <laughs> oh, poor me. I can't do this because, you know, and, and the, the lit, it was endless. And I said, what the heck is this state of mind? I said, I, you know, so I called it self-pity. I think it's self-pity. So I'm just saying, Wow. I would get caught in self-pity all the time and I never knew it. I never saw that that was a, even a, a narrative in my mind and in 36, 37 years. And yet, once I saw it, it was like it was arising dozens of times an hour, it seemed like. Well, I got really interested. I got really interested to to notice this because I saw that it was a thought, it was a judgment, it was a belief that if I saw it as a belief, it it wasn't something I could believe and it just passed and it was gone. But if I entertained it even for a split second, I would stop practice. It's just like, I can't do it. Okay, collapse. Just kind of collapse. And energy, effort, it is said, manifests as non-collapse. Now you know what you know what collapse is like. This is a this is a visual instruction. You have to kind of watch this one. So you're going along, you're going along. You're 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 with the breath, you're with the present moment. You're walking, lifting, moving, placing, whatever you know. And at some point you just go, you know, you got the you got the connection. You're connected with the present moment, and then you drop it. You just collapse. Clunk. And that's all it is, physically. But it's the the end of your energy, the end of your mental energy. And when you collapse, you don't look. You don't remember. You don't engage. You You don't really see what's going on. You're lost in your own collapse. This is so subtle and pervasive, really, until you begin to recognize it. And that's what mindfulness does. It remembers to notice these, well, in my case, self-pity, a form of collapsing. should be clear, though, that mindfulness is not about trying to create something. It's not about trying to get rid of anything. It's not about trying to figure something out. It's not about confirming what you've read in any of the texts ever. It's not about some obligation that you have to do. It's not, it's not about that at all. It's about remembering to recognize the present moment's experience, whatever it is. And the interesting thing about mindfulness, any of these factors, is it's not a personal attribute that you either have or don't have. 
it is a function of mind that if you cultivate the causes and conditions will develop. And it's not a matter of you can't do it. It's a matter of if the conditions are there and you do what you can to support those conditions, remembering will happen more continuously. What happens as we uh, remember more frequently to notice the present moment, the wandering mind gets shorter and shorter. So instead of sitting down, noticing the in-breath, and then wandering for five minutes, when you notice, oh, an out-breath, and you wander for five minutes, you know, in the beginning of practice, you know, you sit down and you don't have very good mindfulness, you don't remember too often, and you get up after 45 minutes and you say, wow, that was, that was a pretty good sitting. My mind only wandered three times. That's pretty good, right? Your mind only wanders three times? Of course, it wandered for 15 minutes each time. <laughs> you know, later on, when your practice gets better, you sit down and your mind wanders every minute. You know, 45, 45 times my mind wandered in this 45 minute sitting. And you think, God, I'm getting worse. But your mind only wandered for a minute each time. Actually, that's better. <laughs> it may be a little counterintuitive, but it's better to have shorter wandering mind because it means that the mind is more stable. The mind is not just kind of being jerked all over the place. It's stable. It stays in the present moment and it's there for an in-breath, an out-breath, a thought, a sensation, a memory, a plan, a sight, a sound, a smell, a memory, an in-breath, an out-breath. And when there's that kind of continuity, the mind doesn't get so dispersed. It doesn't fly off into all of those fantasies and memories and plans and excitements that, well, just dissipate the mind. Because you're remembering. Remember, mindfulness is getting the ability to remember is getting more continuous. And so the mind just becomes more and more stable. It stays put, so to speak. It's like it stays in the present moment. And whatever the present moment is presenting, if you're using a primary object, it stays with that. Or if you're, if you're open to random objects, choiceless objects, it'll stay with them. It stays with the knowing of them. And this stability of mind is called samadhi. Now, sometimes it's translated as concentration. But unfortunately, when, when we think of concentrating the mind, we kind of squeeze our eyes, furrow our brow, hunch our shoulders, clench our fists, and focus on some little microscopic sensation at the tip of the nostrils and call that concentration. That's called tension producing a headache. That's not concentration. That's just narrowing the range of object. Well, if you only try to pay attention to one object, it is a little easier than recognizing dozens of different objects. That's true. But all of the squinching and squeezing and focusing and jamming your mind down onto this little, not necessary. That's not, that's not concentration. Concentration is really the collectedness of mind when it's not dispersed. And when the mind becomes collected and it's not running out to all of these random occurrences in the mind, then we begin to see more deeply into the way things are. And the unified mind that is not dispersed 
begins to see things in a very unified way. One way I noticed it, you know the floor here is, is a, it's not parquet, but it's a hardwood floor. Well, in, in some places there's parquet floor or there's, there's just patterns in the floor. Of course, it's, there's no, it's totally random pattern. But when your mind is very collected, it will see patterns in that floor, even where there isn't any. Or when the mind is that collected, it can look at the leaves on a tree and see patterns in the tree. So you've got to be a little bit careful what you do with a concentrated mind. You can get a little woo-woo-wow-wow with it. So it's better to be practicing insight than just concentration. But what happens with the concentrated mind, the stable mind that isn't being dispersed, is we really get into and kind of you see the world, everything in it, as one whole piece. We've mentioned Deepama, the uh, Indian woman who was extraordinary yogi. She was taught by Manindra, and she just had a tremendous amount of suffering in her life, but she also had tremendous practice, even in her first week of practice. Very concentrated, deep, deep uh, absorptions and deep and liberating insights within a few days of practice. Well, one of our friends, uh, Jack Engler, who was who got his PhD at Harvard in psychology, he was also practicing insight practice when she was around. And he, for his doctoral thesis, he offered a battery of Western psychological tests to about a dozen people that had been identified as having attained either first, second, or third stage of enlightenment. So he gave them all these tests. And so he gave Deepama Rorschach test, among others. Now, Rorschach test, you know, that's the inkblot test. You know, the first one is, you know, it's, it's a very simple inkblot. And the second one's a little more complex, and the third one's even more complex. And basically you have to tell the person who's offering you the test what you see. You know, and it's all associative and it's all kind of images. There's no, there's no real, clear, definite thing, but just what does your mind project onto this? And by the time you get to the 10th one, my God, it's like a circus carnival going on. It's all colorful and it's, it's, there's just a lot going on in that one. And you can talk a long time about what you see if you have a kind of a fertile mind. Well, someone, Jack gave Deepama the, the, the test the Rorschach test, and recorded what she said. And then someone else interprets it. They don't know who it, who it was. They interpret it. And after they read her transcript of what she said, they realized that they'd never seen anyone do a Rorschach test like she had. Never. They, they couldn't find any... They, none, of, none of the people that were involved in the project had ever heard of anybody doing what she did. And so they, they looked around in, in the research of reported research of, of others who had given Rorschach tests, and they found one uh, other somewhat similar um, experience with the Rorschach that was administered to a Native American shaman. And what Deepama had done with these ten very different cards is she had told a story about the Dharma, weaving all the images 
from all the cards together into a single story. Now, if, you, if you've seen the Rorschach cards, it's hard to do, it would be hard to do that. But it was all about the Dharma. And she made references between the image of this card and the image of another card, and she just, just wove this whole thing all together. So it was not even ten different cards to her, it was just one story. That's what the concentrated mind does. Unbelievable. But that's an example. Not that, not that we need to do that. You couldn't, even, you couldn't do that. Even he- hearing this, if you tried to do that, you couldn't do it. It'd be so difficult. But that's what concentrating the mind or collecting the mind does. Now, the interesting thing about collecting the mind, the proximate cause for this kind of samadhi or collectedness of mind is not trying harder, furrowing your brow, hunching your shoulders, clenching your fists. It's happy comfort of mind and body. Happy comfort of mind and body. That's, that's being relaxed. You know, relax your body, relax your mind, get collected. Just the opposite of what we think. We think, we got to go, and it's not. Sayadaw Rutajaniya really hit on something when he says, you know, practice with a relaxed body and a relaxed mind. Now, if I say to you, relax your body, you know, we all know what to do. We go, oh, okay. And we just, we just kind of, Settle down, we just kind of release the tension, and we just kind of let gravity do the work, and we just get comfortable. And then if I say, relax your mind, what do you do? <laughs> you, know, you know, it's not clear what we have to do to relax the mind, is it? Well, really, what you do is you let go of any agenda, any project, anything other than just being present, recognizing the present moment. And that's how you relax the mind. No, not, not trying to do anything. Not trying to create something. Not trying to get rid of something. Not trying to figure something out. You just relax. Notice. That's it. That kind of relaxed body and mind is what allows the mind to just come together very naturally. Get collected on each moment as it appears and recognize it. And when the mind is that collected and lands on the present moment experience, it sees deeply into what's appearing. It sees deeply. It doesn't just skim along the top. It goes into the experience and sees its intrinsic nature. So we say, you know, when any of these mental states arise, or anything calls your attention, observe it in a relaxed manner, or an interested observation, in order to recognize it's nature. That's wisdom. And when the mind is collected, it quite naturally just lays on, goes into, and knows the inherent characteristics of this experience that's presenting itself. This is wisdom. Because from this knowledge, we gain understanding about the nature of all experience. And when we apply the na- that understanding to the decisions we make in life and what we say and what we do and how we respond to conditions and situations, it comes out as wisdom because we understand this is the way things have come to be. We're not arguing with, we're not struggling with, we're not in denial of, we're not minimizing, we're not avoiding. We understand 
because we've just settled down onto the present moment, into the present moment, moment after moment, and we see this is the way this is the way it is. And when you don't struggle with the way it is, you come into alignment, you come into harmony, you come into uh, peace, peace. The doorway of peace opens when the mind is not struggling. This is the direction of practice. With that kind of understanding and that kind of peace, we feel more inspired, more confident. We have more faith in making the effort to be more mindful, thereby collecting the mind and seeing again more deeply into present moment's experience. And in this way, these five factors grow cyclically, conditioning one another, deepening the stillness and the understanding. And that's why we can say that the unfolding of wisdom is a naturally occurring process in the development of insight. If you make the effort, if you have the face and you make the effort, awareness, you will remember, the mind will get collected, you'll understand more and more. This is the nature of the unfolding of wisdom. You don't have to go looking for it. We just have to remember. And so practice becomes one of supporting the conditions for just being aware. This is the dynamic nature of awareness. All of these elements are at play all the time. Of course, they're not always in balance. They're not always mature. And so we keep recognizing when they're out of balance, when they're not mature, and we we work to kind of bring them into balance and let wisdom unfold naturally, as it will. Knowing with wisdom, knowing reality, does not have the characteristic of becoming monotonous. It is always new and always fresh. You don't get tired of knowing, as knowing is never finished. It never gets boring. You need to be happy with work, the work you're doing to have an interest in it. This work is for life, Sayadaw Tejaniya says. So let's just sit quietly and let these words settle down. Knowing is never finished. It never gets boring. You need to be happy with this work you're doing, to have an interest in it, because this work is for life.
So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.